traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, what are the forces reshaping today's Europe? Within the EU, the idea of a journey towards ever closer union now seems very far from reality. The continent feels in many ways to resemble the fractured world of pre-First World War politics rather than a harmonious landmass linked by strong institutions. Watched as jubilant crowds danced on the infamous Berlin Wall that's divided Europe for a generation. After the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, Europe saw itself as a stronghold of liberal democracy. But in Hungary and Poland, democratic norms are being eroded. The south of the continent is buffeted by economic winds, and a wave of refugees and migrants has unleashed tensions about how open borders can or should be. Major anti-migrant protests have erupted in Germany this week. The murder of a German to the east, a resurgent Russia tests its boundaries. With us to discuss the roller coaster of recent European events is a leading British historian, Sir Ian Kershaw. He's the author of Definitive Biographies of Hitler and To Helen Back, A History of Europe from 1914 to 1949. His latest book, Roller Coaster, picks up the story of Europe from the high of the post-war economic miracle of the 1950s through to the dizzying turbulence of the present. Ian Kershaw, what about the metaphor of the roller coaster? I mean, you have to cope with a, a very broad kind of panoply here. I'm sure lots of other metaphors probably suggested themselves as you went through European history since 1945. Why did you fix on that? Uh, not many metaphors do, as a matter of fact, suggest themselves. It's very difficult to come up with one term which summarizes the history of the last 70 years or so, um, because there isn't one constant theme in European history in the way that there was for the previous volume on to hell and back where you're in and out of war, in and out of war. Whereas I think since 1950, there hasn't been one theme that corresponds to that. Globalization, maybe. So when I was looking for this, what I wanted to do was to, in a way, to counter the somewhat axiomatic assumption that it's been a one-way upward street since the Second World War and everything's just got better and better and so on until maybe the, the finance crash of 2008 and so on. And I wanted to counter that a little bit by looking at the ups and downs and the twists and turns of European history over this time. So the roller coaster is an imperfect metaphor, that's for sure. Nonetheless, it does bring out this turbulence of European history. The history is full of unexpected turns and sometimes uh, these you can foresee in a way and in other ways they are things which then come out of the blue almost and when you look at the major turning point. Give me an point, example of that. Something well, that comes out of the blue. In history. Well quite literally out of the blue would be 2001 and the 9-11 uh, the uh, attack but even before then I would say other major turning points would be 1973 and the oil crash or the two oil crashes of 73 and 79 washed over Europe from the Middle East 
the collapse of, of communism. Nobody expected it just before it happened, even. So, again, there, it was something which, without Gorbachev, probably wouldn't have happened then. 2001, I've mentioned, and then 2008, the finance crash. Nobody was really expecting that, and then all at once it happened. And how can you have enough distance, say, from the events of 2016, 17, or even the financial crisis 10 years ago to say, I'm going to judge this as a historian. Are you committing journalism? Are you taking my job? Well, uh, at one time, we used to think that history can only be written when the public records are available after 30 years or whatever it was. But I think that's been um, eroded through uh, through memoirs of, of prominent figures in, in government and elsewhere, through, uh, through social media, through journalistic, uh, very good journalistic report, reportage and the rest of it. And I found in that last chapter that I did on Europe's crisis years that I was dealing mainly with very high quality journalism in a number of countries. And I, I, it's true that when the story comes to be told finally from the records, it might be slightly different here and there. In, but I, I, I'm confident that that story is actually not too far from what it will remain. Of course, just out of, in a book like mine, I have to go over the surface of so many things. And there'll be deeper histories written, such as Adam Tooze's now of the, of the finance crash. But in terms of uh, what, what it's possible to do in a book of this sort, I think it's legitimate to go right at the present. When we talk about a history of post-war Europe, how long do you think that Europe, in the unitary sense in which we use it in conversation, has existed? I mean, do we even agree what it is, given that its borders have changed so much? I, I didn't spend much time in either book talking about where, how to define Europe because it, it pragmatically just alters. And I think in this, sec, in this second half of the 20th century, uh, well, down to the end of communism anyway, you've got these two halves, both of which are, have an artificial identity. It's a politically determined identity. Western Europe has no sense other than within the context of the Cold War, really. Uh, so Turkey is belonging to the West, doesn't geographically make any sense and so on. Does Russia belong to Europe? Well, obviously it does in part. Parts of it are geographically not in Europe, but the history of Russia or the Soviet Union obviously belongs to Europe. And Turkey, um, ditto that Turkey is on the fringes of, of Europe. It looks eastwards as well as westwards, but in parts it's intervened in Europe and its story can't be detached from it. So Europe itself is not a very finite entity, that's true geographically, but you can say where these external areas impinge upon central issues in Europe at more or less every, uh, every eventuality. Well, let's take Europe's relationship with Russia then. Do you see Mr. Putin as coming from a European or a Eurasian context of authoritarian leaders? He, he comes out of a specific Russian context, which has looked eastwards as well as westwards, and that's obviously the case. And the strong man in, in Russian history or Soviet history has obviously been a, a, a central feature. But at the same time, the, there is an element there in which Putin's behavior does resonate with past dictatorial forms of, of government, authoritarian government, 
in Europe itself. And here you have an authoritarian government with a democratic facade. And that seems to me to be also fairly characteristic of what's developed subsequently that we have in more in Eastern Europe and, and farther east in Turkey and in Russia. You have um, the strong authoritarian tendencies that remain there. But because democracy has then become established, you can't now say I'm going to demolish democracy in the way that Hitler did in the 1930s. But but you, you can erode it from within whilst retaining the democratic facade. And I think in that sense, I was looking at Putin as a, as a European phenomenon too. How much do you think that the financial crisis of 2007-8 changed Europe and set institutional Europe on a course that it's been unable, frankly, to control and leads us to to you know, many of the eruptions that we you see today from Brexit to growth of different forms of populism in Eastern, Southern Europe and also within Western Europe. Is that a defining moment that stands above all others? Not sure above all others, but certainly well up there. I remember the very day after the the bank fears in this country at the beginning of October in 2008, we had a little family party and we were all at once worried about the banks crashing in this country. I remember saying to my eldest son, David, at the time, I said, Europe will never be the same after this. This is a major turning point. And it was just an instinct that I had at that time. But I think that instinct has been borne out by what's happened. Uh, that I think in, in our case, I think you can probably draw a direct line from the finance crisis through the migration crisis to Brexit. But I think elsewhere in, in Europe, it's been, it's brought about a fundamental shift. And you look at the state of the European Union now and the Eurozone in particular, and even the Eurozone's over its uh, worst of its travails. Many economic experts think that it's still a crisis waiting to happen. And if the economic weather blows stormy once more, then it's not in a brilliant position to withstand those storms. And that's the contradiction, isn't it? Because a, a lot of historians, would it be fair to call you a, a pro-European? Would you yes, yes, I do. Yes, I am. Yeah. Wear your badge with pride. So let's call you, for these purposes, a pro-European. And yet the fragility of this enterprise is striking, isn't it? It is. Um, although we have to distinguish that from the fragility of the European Union itself. The European Union exists beyond the Eurozone, although the Eurozone is its core part. And if I were looking back, I would want to point to one turning point in the history of the European Union, which was a f fatal one in my view. It would be the, the rush to push on with integration and with the introduction of the euro in particular in the 1990s. And I think they could have taken greater time over that and it might have developed in a better sense. But the eurozone, I think, is fragile. On the other hand, I think the structures of the European Union have developed. They, they, they could be buffeted, they could change uh, drastically, but they have developed a, a sort of solidity which will be not too easy to destroy. They, it could be shaken and it could theoretically be destroyed, but I, I think they've got a resilience that uh, we shouldn't underestimate. Some historians are saying that we live in a time where loyalty to the nation state is rising again and that it, it kind of eclipses the sense of a shared European project. These things are obviously in balance. But do oh, that's you surely correct. That mm, yeah, yeah. I think that predates the finance crash, incidentally. I mean, you go back to the, you can always see the, the rise of xenophobia, 
attacks on migrants and the rest of it already in the 1990s in certain parts of Europe, rise of, of, of what we call populist parties or nativist parties these days. You can already see that in parts of Europe in the 1990s. Of course, it got a massive boost following the finance crash and especially the migration crisis so that that drastically accelerated trends that were already in view and the nation state never went away and one of my... Sounds like you don't like the nation state no, if no, you, I, you, you I, I leap do. into... No, 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 on the contrary. No, 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 on the contrary, I, I, I do. I mean, I think the, it's logical that the chief sense of identity is with the nation state. That's distinguished from, especially from the type of xenophobic uh, racist nationalism, which we're seeing a lot of signs of now in new populist parties. But no, no, the nation state never went away. And uh, if you look back at the opinion surveys carried out by the European Union before the finance crash in the early 2000s when everything were going so well, what they were showing was a very limited sense of identity with Europe as, as, a, as an entity and a very strong sense of primary identity with the nation state. I think that's natural. It just highlights the inbuilt tension that's always been there in the, in the European Union between the centralizing tendencies, integrationist tendencies, and the fact that people's identity is with something other, with the nation state. With that in mind, did you see Brexit coming? No. I didn't. Um, I, I, um, I w- right to the end, to the very evening, I was sure that Remain would win. Um, and uh, I remember having a conversation with German friends of mine only a week or two before, and they were very pessimistic, said, no, uh, you're going to be leaving the European Union. I said, no, no, the bookmakers, the bookies say Remain will win. I always go with the bookies, and the bookies got it wrong as well. You say that Brexit will change Europe, possibly for better, but probably for worse. Uh, from a historian's perspective, what is the main risk? What's the big risk of Brexit? I point to an obvious twofold risk. One is an economic risk. We have um, 40% of our business with the European Union. We want to supplant that by deals elsewhere. It takes a lot of doing to supplant that and turn your back on something that has actually functioned pretty well. And I think in the British case, with all our opt-outs and rebates and so on, I think we're in a pretty good place with the European Union before we left it. So one, one side's the, the economic argument that's been put by very many people. The other side of it, though, is that in a very insecure world, which we are in now, would you really want to be placing such a lot of emphasis on, on developing close ties with Trump's America. Hmm. I, I think, you know, you stick with your very close friends and with a, with a very high standing of, that we have in the world, which is at least in part because we were part of a big entity. Not wholly, but um, it, it, I think it embellished our role. And I think if we diminish that by leaving, then we're diminishing our world standing, probably our ability to influence things. We have a lot of uh, credibility from uh, previous times in history, but I think we're diminishing that for no very good reason. Is there a parallel in in history? Obviously, it would bound to be be different because institutions change. Is there a period in history that it reminds you of? Not really. I can't think of of um, of a case where a country has. Well, it's all for Rhine. Yeah, the, the Germans all for Rhine. The arguments about this all for Rhine. Well, the customs union. Well, that was a customs union that that was then leading on to greater Prussian integration and then finally on to German integration or German unification. So, But it was an integration project. It was an integration project, but people weren't leaving it. I mean, the, it was actually spreading within Germany to from Prussia then to other parts through Bismarck's conquest. Uh, I can't think of an example where a country turns, it back on, turns its back on something that's functioning 
in its own interests in order to risk something which may well function not in its own interests. The role of Angela Merkel here is interesting, isn't it? I mean, you've uh, lived in Germany, you uh, you write obviously extensively on Germany and your books sell very well in in Germany. There's something of a sense since that last election in the wake of the decision to accept a large number of refugees and some immigration that went along with it, that there's been the late phase of Merkel, the Spätfaser. I'm talking to you actually at a a time when there is street violence in Chemnitz in the old East Germany directed against foreigners. Do you feel that Merkel, you know, is really past the point where she is seen as the leader of small, liberal, open Europe? I think it's approaching that time. And people tend not to do well when they stay in office so long. Helmut Kohl was the same not too long back. This period is is proving very difficult in all sorts of ways for her. The, The crises that are besetting Germany in particular and the European Union in general are very difficult for anybody to handle. And I think what Europe needs, what the European Union needs, is a rebooting now, a a new start and a renewal process. And Merkel, whose hallmark is solidity and continuity and keeping things going in a very clever way, isn't the best person to lead that. Macron is making a good fist of it in France, but France can't get very far without German support. And for domestic reasons, Germany is now being held back from giving that support to uh, European rebooting, I would say. And so there's a sort of stasis now in, in Europe. And what, you're, what you really need is, is somebody on the German side with the vision, which maybe at one in a different era you would have said with somebody like Willy Brandt, for example. I think Europe is, is now faced with lots of mega problems which need Germany to uh, take a leap over its own shadow. And at the minute, it's not prepared to do that. There are some who see parallels with the 1930s economic problems, disillusionment with the establishments, a tendency to to scapegoat. Overdone or justified? I I think they are overdone. I think if you... They sound very plausible when they're mentioned in a sentence or two. As soon as you start to analyse them, then I think the differences stand out more than the similarities with the 1930s. And then the comparisons. There are affinities, it's plain, but the affinities then become weaker and then you see the differences and to try to explain today's problems through the prism of the 1930s doesn't really work. One subject that has reared its head uh, from that that point, which must resonate with you, is anti-Semitism and uh, the allegations. The one that's dominated the news cycle here in Britain is against Jeremy Corbyn, the the Labour leader, and Deborah Lipstadt, the historian, has said in the past that many Jews no longer feel safe. Again, is it overdone or do you think that there is something about anti-Semitism today in 2018 that we should be worried about? I think it's absolutely understandable that many Jews can feel like that. Uh, But I think it is nonetheless an exaggeration. Uh, uh, I don't want to play down for a second uh, the feeling when when there are um, attacks on Jews and attacks on the press and so on, but also physical attacks in some places and attacks on Jewish cemeteries. That can't be taken lightly. I think anti-Semitism today is nonetheless very different from that of the 1930s in one obvious sense that much of it today is directed towards the Middle Eastern issue, the Palestinian question. And there is residual anti-Semitism from that time, which still exists and is taken up by the extreme right. But I think it washes over into different forms of anti-Semitism through the Middle Eastern question. And I think that's where Jeremy Corbyn has got himself um, really embroiled. So what's the problem with Jeremy Corbyn, if there is one? 
on this question? Well, from what I've, I've read about it, uh, Corbyn's problem is that he's very pro-Palestinian in, in the case, very anti-Israeli government, and through that has got himself in a position where he is then associating himself with anti-Zionist positions that very quickly then dissolve into anti-Semitism. There is a, a distinction, I think, but it's a very narrow one to draw, and I think Corbyn has been uh, has, has overstepped that mark in one or two of his re- his comments and I think he's got the Labour Party now in a terrible mess which it didn't ever need to get itself into and it seems perverse to me that at the, de- at the time when, when we're faced with these really existential issues for our own country, the Labour Party is now tearing itself apart over the question of anti-Semitism and uh, many Jews were always on the side of the Labour Party and now they're being really forced away from it. On the uh, Corbyn issue, it's, I, I think much of it then, this question of, as I understand it anyway, the question of the definition of anti-Semitism revolved around the, uh, the question of, of the nature of Israel and whether you can criticize the state of Israel and so on. And that's, again, very, you know, very narrow divides between criticizing the government of Israel and the state of Israel and then Jews. And I think Corbyn and people in the Labour Party overstepped that mark. And so would you urge Labour to accept the recommendations of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance as the working definition of anti-Semitism? Yes. You would? Because Definitely. I think you accept that. It's a widely recognized definition. And then within that accepted definition, then you you can still engage in criticism of the government of Israel. That's absolutely legitimate. But accept that definition and move on with more things to bother about than this this uh, dancing on the on the head of a needle to, uh, about, uh, about anti-Semitism and the Labour Party. You conclude that the only certainty is uncertainty. Now, that is tantalizing, isn't it? Uh, can you give us a bit a bit more on that? What's... What is less certain and what is more? Every age is, is uncertain and insecure, of course, but I think we're in a, an, an era of particular insecurity. And when you look at um, Trump's America and see how that um, affects us all, we don't know from one day to the next basically what the president's going to do and, and how international affairs are going to develop in this. As a historian, you have no greater purchase on the future than any other person has and you have no greater soothsaying capabilities than an ordinary person. But I think now, above all, what we seem to have is actually uncertainty in so many areas that it's more than ever legitimate to say we simply don't know. We're at the behest of events and we can't foretell those events and things might change very rapidly from from one day to the next, more or less. And let's just accept that and say that we, we can see how we've come to where we've come, but we can't really go much further. Has he ever got its response to Donald Trump right? I'm not sure what that response is at present. It's a very cautious one, a waiting response, I think, because Europe now says that it's got to get its own act together in terms of defence and so on, the big obstacles to that, of course. Um, it's hesitant in how it deals with Trump. Merkel, in particular, is very uh, very careful, standoffish in a way. Uh, Macron's tried to embrace Trump and is still now taking a distant position. I think they're also all feeling the way because this is such an unpredictable president that it's very difficult to work out a strategy of how to deal with him in the way that you could deal with, let's say, Obama or Reagan even a long time ago. Now, it's so difficult to do that that I think Europe hasn't got a unified position or a clear position. And I think it's like a remain a bit like that. And is the roller coaster now 
heading upwards and you feel that you were more broadly on a, an upward trajectory or should we expect the next big um, I think we are, stomach churning swoop? I think we're on one of those slight upward turns in the roller coaster, but it could turn down again in the very near future and it might disturb us all when it does. Sir Ian Kershaw, thanks very much for joining us. Great pleasure. We hope you enjoyed that conversation and while you're on, we're running a survey to find out how you listen to our podcasts. It's at radio.economist.com slash survey. It's quick and painless and we'd really love to hear how you listen to us. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.